1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. Let's hear God's holy word. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? The grass withers and the flower fades. God's holy and errant word endures forever. May He bring His blessing. Well, we are looking at what is the church. And thus far we have seen that the church is Christ's own building. Jesus is the builder and the maker of His church. That doesn't mean that the church is a building even though we come to a building to meet and to be gathered together. It doesn't mean that the church is some physical, if you will, place on the earth. The church is that representation of the kingdom of God on earth. And so the church is rightly viewed as the kingdom of God. And Christ is the one who declared, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so there is that understanding of kingdom conflict that goes on. But it's understanding Christ is building His church. And so it is being built every generation. And... As well, we considered what marks the church. What marks a more or less pure and faithful church. Not every church is the same. You all, I think, have an understanding of that. If you have been to any number of churches in any number of places, you will see differences in the way they worship. Probably for some of you, ours is a little tamer than what you might be used to. For some of you, it might seem a little more formal and have a little more liturgy than what you're accustomed to. You will see and hear a different doctrine in various churches. Churches here on earth, particular congregations, they are more or less pure, as we heard last week, according to how the doctrines of the gospel are proclaimed and received by the congregation, how the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are ministered, and as well, how we worship. And some churches worship God more purely. Some worship God less purely. The marks of the church are are carried out more or less purely, more or less faithfully in every generation. Well, today we are looking at and trying to understand 
where our true communion rests as a church. As we carry on in the activities of the kingdom of God, both in this hour and time of worship, but also in our life in the coming week. What is our communion? And how do we express that? I want to remind you of that quote that I gave you in the very first message. That we as the church, when we come together to worship God on the Lord's day, and after we are finished worshiping God, when we leave this place and go into the world in the coming week, we don't stop being the church. The church doesn't suddenly disappear and is found no more until the following Lord's Day, the following Sunday. We continue on as the church of Christ in this coming week. Where is your true communion and fellowship as you go into the world. And today it's about embracing that true communion with Christ crucified. And particularly Paul brings us to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to show that here is where our true communion is realized and is expressed and is a benefit to us in this coming week. Now, many of you know that I like to ask very provocative questions just to get you thinking. I'm not looking for you to answer with this question, but to get your mind going. What would you say is one of the church's greatest struggles? I know we can come up with some of the things that have already been mentioned. Well, faithfulness to doctrine, that that is a struggle for some churches. Some are, again, more or less pure to that. The way a church worships, that has a little reflection on where I'm going this morning. What is the church's greatest struggle? And the two that that I see most predominantly are connected. And, And Paul brings out that connection here. And if you're trying to understand what is one of the church's greatest struggles... Paul here tells us in verse 18, consider Israel. We always like to say there's nothing new under the sun. What our generation is experiencing has been experienced by previous generations. The same is true with the church. The church's struggle today is no different than the church's struggle in the last generation or in the Old Testament times with Israel. And it comes down to two things. The church has always struggled with idolatry and unity. And the two are connected. (laughs) Because idolatry, fundamentally, at its very base, is self-worship. And when everyone is worshipping themselves, what kind of unity do you have? You don't. You might find semblances of of community with like-minded, but it only goes as far as they agree with you. (laughs) We, We know those things. We see it time and time again played out. And Paul brings us here to say in the midst of this, where is your communion? Verses 16 and 17, what are you partaking in? Where's your fellowship? And then he says, look at Israel. 
The idolatry he, he brings up in verse 19 was something that Israel struggled with greatly time and time again. And, and you have a semblance of that. And we'll cover it more clearly in, in just a few minutes. But if you look at, at verses 5 down to verse 11, Paul gives examples of Israel's idolatry. And, and it seems not even within a few weeks of coming out of Egypt and, and Moses is on the mountain, there is idolatry cropping up in a violent way against the holiness of God with the golden calf. It didn't take them long, did it? And then you look at the course of the Old Testament and, and as idolatry rose within the the life of Israel. Bear this in mind. Some of you may not have this, this understanding of theology. But Israel is the Old Testament church in its infancy. It was God's representation of His kingdom to the world. You want to know God, come to Israel and you will see your God. But as idolatry increased, what happened to the unity of Israel. It decreased. Their communion became more with the world around them than it did with one another in Christ. Isn't it interesting? The Apostle John, when he wrote his first letter after he wrote the Gospel, and he was dealing with issues that had risen up within the church and how the church was was beginning to stray into something we call Gnosticism. Isn't it interesting when you read that letter, 1 John, that it ends with this little verse, 1 John 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Boom. (laughs) It's thrown out there. John Calvin said, what did he say about man's heart? (laughs) Man's heart is a factory of idols. And even within the Christian's redeemed heart, we struggle with idolatry. Let's not forget this letter is being written to the church. Observe Israel and how they struggled with idolatry. And consider your communion as a church. We live in a time when the church wants to be relevant. How many of you have heard that? We want to be relevant. We want to be winsome. We want to be accepted. We want to be able to respond to people's needs. All which I don't think are wrong. But when you look at the church, ask yourself, where have they looked to be relevant, to be winsome, to be accepted, to respond to people's needs? And what you've seen often, time and time again, they have looked beyond the realm of Holy Scripture to what the world looks at and delights in. And says if we're going to be relevant to this world, we must understand what they find relevance in. And so we'll take that on and so minister to them. And that downward spiral into idolatry begins when the church starts looking beyond God and His Word in order to be relevant. 
You know, in the last 12 years alone, I've seen this within North American Christianity churches. Christmas parties with Santa dropping in to deliver gifts to children. Super Bowl party. We've canceled our evening service so that we can watch the Super Bowl. I'm sure God delighted in that. It's really sad, isn't it? It gets worse. American Idol. Pick your song and we'll sing it for you on Sunday. And we're not talking about worship song. It's horrendous. I hope your heart's breaking. Concert style worship. We're not going to have a sermon tonight. We're just going to worship God. As though sitting and hearing God's word read and proclaimed isn't worship. (laughs) Our hearts are factories of idols. And that's the trouble the church has. And when we fall into that downward spiral of idolatry, trying to be relevant, trying to be winsome, trying to be accepted, trying to respond to people's needs, our communion, both with Christ and with one another, dissipates. It's the natural end of such idolatry. I don't mean to sound so rough, but but that's the reality that we're always dealing with. Paul here brings us to the Lord's table to help us to understand why this is so important that the church guards against idolatry and finds her communion in Christ and Him alone. He brings us to communion in Christ to show how we are to be holy to the Lord and thus the Lord's kingdom and people and and how in being so minded we guard against idolatry. When we realize the one who is set before us is the one who is Lord, King and Head of His church, we walk in communion with Him and Him alone. This is where the church finds her communion. And and here we are called to participate in this communion. Participation and communion go hand in hand. We see that first of all in verses 16 and 17. And and there are two words that really stand out in this passage that I want to highlight as we understand participation in communion. And the two words are, number one, communion itself. You see it uh, in verse 16, verse 18, and verse 20. And, and sometimes one of your translations, you may see it translated fellowship or par- participation. I think ESV uses the word participation. It's that word communion. Koinonia. How many of us are familiar with that word? The koinonia, the fellowship, the communion we have together. That is important to understand. It's talking about participating, being a participant in that union. And the second word, you see it in verse 17 and verse 21, is the word partaker, which means to take a share in. And what Paul shows us with those two words is, you either have your communion in Christ, or you have your communion with demons. 
That's his contrast. There's no fence setting with Paul, is there? What a, what a dramatic picture he sets before us. Where's your fellowship? Where's your communion? What are you partaking in? Is it with Christ or with demons? But this is dealing with that issue of idolatry. And in consideration of that issue of idolatry, he begs the question as he brings up the matter of communion itself and the Lord's table that's set before us. What's so special about this communion meal? Now here's some good doctrine for you to lay hold of. What is so special about that tiny piece of bread that you get and that little cup of juice or wine that you drink? What makes it so mighty? And what Paul is saying to us in verses 16 and 17 is, is, this, is this reality that that bread and that cup bring. The reality of communion is that it is supremely about you fellowshipping in Christ crucified. That's where it is. You are fellowshipping in what He accomplished in His body. When Christ was on the cross and as His body was was hanging there unto death, what was happening? Two things. One we're very familiar with. We understand that in dying... Christ provided atonement and and part of that atonement was having all of our sins as His people being placed upon the body of Christ. And the bread is representing Christ in His body bearing away our sins and the justice we deserve for all our sins. He physically and really endured that in His death on the body. It flows from the Old Testament where the high priest was to take the sacrifice, put his hand on the head of that lamb and pronounce all of Israel's sins upon that creature. And then it was killed and and the second one was sent off into the desert to represent that work of Christ, what He accomplished with His body. The bearing away of all our sins. Beautiful, isn't it? (laughs) The quenching of God's judgment against us. What does every one of your sins deserve? It deserves death. It deserves hell forever. (laughs) Each sin, the combined mass of all our sins, has been laid on Christ And He has made atonement for all of them. Isn't that wondrous? For all of us as His people. But Paul brings out another reality of of this table, of this communion. And that is, that union with Christ's crucifixion means that the Father has purchased us with the blood of His Son. He has purchased for Himself a people to be His own people. And Paul already brought that out if you were to go back in 1 Corinthians to chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. You would hear, if you haven't memorized these verses, you should. 
But he says here, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? It's 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. Whom you have from God and you, listen to these words, and you are not your own. Get that, dear Christian. You're not your own. For you were bought at a price. And what did it cost God to purchase you so that your body and your soul could be a dwelling place for His Spirit here on earth? It cost the crucifying of His Son in your place. Peter brings out that same message in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he talks there about being holy because the Lord our God is holy. And if you call upon the Father, you're to to realize how you are to conduct yourself throughout your time here on earth. Knowing, listen to this, 1 Peter 1, 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish. You've been redeemed, purchased by God. And and this is how Scripture puts it. It's strange to our ears. But it delighted God to have His Son crucified so that He could purchase you to be His people. That's what makes grace amazing. It delighted God to deliver up His Son so that you could be in His kingdom. Do you know that? Does it warm your heart? Like, Do you sit astounded just thinking, God did this for me. What I deserve, I'm not experiencing. What I don't deserve, I now am so blessed with. Is that your heart? Well, the reality of your communion, my friends, is this, you've been so united to Christ, crucified, that you now see and taste the love of God. Communion, this table, is a testimony to your soul of that reality of both atonement, but of being purchased. It's the reality of your participation in it. That's why this table calls for self-examination. Are you in Christ? And all of you who are here today, can you say, yes I am? Or is your answer, no, I'm not in Christ? Where do you stand in relation to Him? And if you're not in Christ, then you can't participate in this because you are scorning and holding in contempt what God has done to redeem His people. You are saying, if you're not in Christ, you're saying, God, I don't need that sacrifice. And God is saying, how dare you scorn my holiness? How dare you scorn my justice? How dare you defy my glory? But if you are in Christ, this table comes and it speaks to you of that love of God. You're mine. I'm yours. This is the communion and fellowship we have together. 
It's one of being crucified with Christ. And what did Paul say about that in Galatians 6.4? That in the cross of Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, we don't follow the world's agenda or desires or ways anymore. We're not here following that idolatry of the world. We are following the living and true God. Do you have that communion? My friends, if you don't, I tell you, don't go through this day without having that assurance of knowing Christ. Don't keep thinking. You have another day to decide these things. God is saying, I have offered up my Son to bring salvation. Believe on Him and you will be saved. Don't scorn His gift. And where Paul goes with this, secondly, when we understand participation is communion to Christ crucified, we also understand, secondly, that participation leads to identification. What you participate in is showing what you are identifying to. (laughs) That's simple, isn't it? So, if I knowing that on the Lord's day I am to be in worship, but I decide instead to go uh, to the Super Bowl. Participation is identity. And that's what Paul is saying in verses 18 to 21. You reveal where your heart is by what you participate in. Hard words, isn't it? And he tells us to observe Israel here. And gives us four examples in verses 5 to 10 of this same chapter. The first one being the example of the golden calf. Israel brought to Mount Sinai, hearing the law of God that we read this this morning, where God says, you shall have, what's the very first commandment? No other gods before me. What's the second commandment? You shall not make any images of God. You shall not bow down to them and worship them. And so this is proclaimed to Israel. And then Moses goes back up the mountain to spend 40 days and Israel sitting at the base of it. And within the space of, not 40 days, but within the space of maybe two weeks, they're saying, ah, Moses is probably dead. Let's make for ourselves some images that represent God and proclaim them to be the images that brought us out of Egypt. Wanting to worship God through images. And idolatry crept in. In Ezekiel, uh, sorry, Exodus 36, where, where Aaron, molding that golden calf, says to Israel, this is your God. And they offered burnt offerings, sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. See, idolatry moved them away from God. Or the incident with Moab in Numbers 25, with unequally yoked marriages, and Israel became corrupted, as through these unequally yoked marriages, idolatry rose up again in their midst. Or the subtleties of idolatry that we don't always see. 
in Numbers 21. And that whole serpent on the pole incident where Israel, just on the verge of the end of 40 years of desert wanderings, and they're ready to go in to take over the promised land, they again have that moment of loathing the manna, the bread of life that God provided for them 40 years in the desert. And they complained bitterly about the hardships of the wilderness and once again said, after 40 years, you would have thought, have they learned their lesson? <laughs> and No, no, they haven't. And they said, you've only brought us here to die. We were better off in Egypt, that's like the Christian today saying, we're better off in the kingdom of this world than we are in the kingdom of God because it's really hard in the kingdom of God. <laughs> Loathing, complaining, bitterness. Have you ever thought of that as marks of idolatry? <laughs> but that's used there. In 1 Corinthians, verse 8, six, chapter 6, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 10, verse 8. Idolatry comes in many forms, but the base of idolatry is seen in the indulgences of the flesh and desires and those bitter complaints against God's way. That's where it's seen. And what happens with all idolatry and what makes it so wicked and evil is it robs God of His glory, His honor, His praise, His worship. It isn't a heart worshiping God, is it? It's a heart worshiping self. And what Paul does is he, as he says there in verse 18, observe Israel after the flesh. He, he goes on to say, what am I saying? Is an idol anything? No. But what's the offering behind it? What's the motive of the offerings to idols? What's really happening? And he, he goes on there to say very dramatically, Look at what you're identifying with. And he uses again the Lord's Supper as that analogy. Just as participating in the Lord's Supper identifies you with the redemptive work of Christ, His death and His resurrection. Just as participating in these elements is saying, I am with Christ. So participation in the pagan hedonistic activities of the world around us is fellowship with demons. We don't like those base uh, analogies, do we? But he brings it there. Because sometimes we need to have the veil pulled back and to see exactly how ugly this is. And how we look at that today. My friends, don't be naive about the world around us. Don't be naive about what is behind worldly practices, cultural ideologies, secular philosophy. We are not being of any help or relevance to anyone by joining in with them in their practices, their their ideologies, their philosophies, We are simply entertaining them in the darkness 
of this world. That's why Paul says in verse 21, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. It's a black and white issue. Don't think you have the ability to juggle the world and kingdom life. We don't. There is wisdom. Now it goes without saying, and I don't want to detract from what's already been said. Am I saying that watching football games is wrong? No. Sacrificing worship to do so? Yes. Sacrificing the Lord's Day? Yes. The commands are clear. Because what happens when we start uniting to the world and its ways? That that subtle idolatry is that our hearts begin to move away from God. Not a huge jump into the pool. But boy, we start wading and we don't realize how deep the water is. And that brings us to the last point that Paul makes there. Participation is communion. Participation leads to identification. Participation provokes jealousy. In verse 22, you're provoking the Lord to jealousy. Just as a husband or wife is entitled to their own spouse's affection and will not tolerate the sharing of those affections with another. So it is with your communion with God. He does not tolerate rivals in our life. We heard the second commandment already. God is telling you that because He has redeemed you, you belong to Him. You've been betrothed to Christ. Set your affections there. The jealousy of God is a righteous anger that does not allow for rivals. That's why Paul, at the very beginning in verse 14, comes out with that imperative, flee idolatry. And as he ends it, he brings us to the jealousy of the Lord. What he's saying is, flee idolatry. Watch out for those footholds of idolatry in your life because what you are doing is you are provoking the jealousy of God. And who here thinks they are stronger than God? (laughs) That sounds so solemn, doesn't it? But it is. Because this is life and death. Eternal life and eternal death. And the Lord here has declared we have been sealed by Christ, by the blood of the Lamb, by the body of Christ crucified for us. We have been sealed in Christ for eternal life. (laughs) Why give that up? For these things of the world that are geared to take us away from Him. So my friends, where is your communion? Who do you identify with? Do you comprehend the love of the Father for you in Christ? Does that seal your heart in devotion to Him? Ask yourself these questions. Seek the Lord. Seek His kingdom. Seek His righteousness. He is a God who delights in the lives of those whom He has redeemed. Let us pray.